Emil Zola. Emil Zola. Emil Zola. That's me correcting the pronunciation of the author that you will hear in this podcast. You can buy a monoblock chair for $3. Do you collect the works of designers? Do you have a juicy salif, a Graves kettle, a Dyson vacuum cleaner, a Miyake apron? Do you agree with Memphis that the ubiquitous black object was boring? Has brutalism been part of your life? I've done many talks on brutalism. My case study in all these talks was the campus buildings of the Indian Institute of Technology in Delhi. The first brutalism talk in Australia was on Orr Street. It was a talk for the architects for peace. Welcome to Learner Centered Design Education. I'm your host, Saumitri Vardarajan. Today's talk uh, podcast episode is on the topic of beauty. It is me trying to sort of make the term beauty A, significant, and B, uh, have more complexity than just appearance. So, yeah, strap yourself in, have a listen, and I'll see you after the podcast in the outro. The topic, no, this was not there in the original list. This is um, sort of come in. Um, the topic is beauty. It also segues, interestingly, from the idea of poetry. So beauty, I mean, you would say, oh, beauty in the sense it's, it's something that happens through your eyes. It's beautiful. But then uh, sort of made us listen to a song. And for those of us who were moved by the song, we would say that was a beautiful song. And then she read some poetry. And then has uh, sucked us into... Uh, minimalism and uh, Japanese aesthetics, which is material aesthetics. And then there's the Song Dynasty, which is, I mean, I am partial to Tang also, or Tang Dynasty, which is maximalism. And then comes Song Dynasty, which is minimalism. But in all of these uh, is a, a yearning for beauty. It's just that the idea of beauty changes. And that is a uh, cultural artifact or a time period and for you today you're in design school and it's 2022 uh, 20 or 30 years later the world will be a different place uh, the values will be different notions of beauty will be different the kind of poetry that will be written at that time will be different we don't know what it's going to be um, will it be cyclical will we cycle back to some of these topics but it would be useful if you have a necessary equipment to be able to unpack beauty. So beauty is not uh, what it is for you up till this point. If you've uh, sort of come from the outside world inside into design, then beauty is a thing. It's a, it's a simple, it's a term. Oh, that's beautiful. So you use it. Inside design, beauty is a goal. It can be an attribute of objects, but it's much more a notion of perfection. So, which means it's complete. It's not uh, in process. It is, it is, this is what is being presented. Then uh, is something that is provocative, also beautiful. And uh, that is a very challenging concept. So quite a bit of, let's say, avant-garde design can be provocative. 
and then it challenges your notion of beauty. So, so let's see how this goes. I'm going to present uh, to you a toolkit which contains five different categories, which uh, is like uh, tools to unlock the notion of beauty or tools to construct the notion of beauty. That's much better. Tools to construct the notion of beauty so that if you are progressing towards realizing uh, your designs uh, to engage with the world of design, with the community of design, with the uh, historical aspects of design and you're looking for beauty, you want to unpack genres, you want to unpack the work of somebody like Norman Foster or Tadao Ando. Is Norman Foster minimalist? Is Tadao Ando minimalist? And how do they sit in the context of song dynasty poetry? These are some of the things that you could be doing. Uh, will you do it? We don't know. All right. So I'm going to sort of start the talk on beauty by going back to 2004. I've taken you back there on a couple of occasions. We're going to go back there again. And this time I'm going to do, I'm going to remember, I'm going to sort of write a little text to this friend of mine or colleague at work. So I'm speaking to him. The year is 2004. You asked me, why don't the Japanese design beautiful cars? Now, you drive a Porsche, a very expensive car, and a very expensive car to repair. And as I said then, best to take the tram to work and to keep the Porsche for social visits. So on reliability, German engineering, Porsche, German manufacturing, not great. On looks, which is what you're probably talking about, it's iconic. Um, but in some eyes maybe a bit constipated. Is it an old person's car? Very tweed jacket? Sort of. So I use this story uh, to highlight uh, the notion of beauty. So beauty is not just looks, or beauty is more like in the Australian expression when you say, you beauty. Um, it's used to describe a properly executed kick, a goal, a punt, Beauty is what you may want to imagine as a word to proffer when you witness perfection. You, you look at somebody doing something and you say, that's so beautiful. And it's usually uh, in a performance, somebody executes something and you say, oh my goodness, that's really beautiful. So in today's talk, you will get a sense of the unpacking of beauty in, let's say, three parts. So you've got this outer beauty, you've got the inner beauty, and... You've got the beauty of machines, which, well, as you would expect, in my case, I would drag you into the world of engineering or machines. Even when we're talking about beauty, it's the beauty of machines. Um, we, we, will, we will have a look at the narrative of looks, you know, how, how something looks. So strap yourself in for a bumpy ride. Where do we start? We're going to start with a pretty dangerous product. Um, so this is a monoblock chair. I'm going to go and type monoblock, and you can pick that up, and you can go and have a look at what Google offers you. A monoblock is a chair that is made in one piece. It's a plastic chair, and it's a one-shot injection-molded chair. And what is exquisite about the monoblock is that the die set that is used to build the monoblock 
because the monoblock has no undercuts, there are no sliders, which means it's very, very quick. So, uh, is there any of you who doesn't know what a monoblock is? No, you've seen monoblocks and you've sort of looked at it, gone, that's a plastic chair. But is it a design classic? Are there designers' names associated with the monoblock? Yes. In technical terms, is the monoblock a thing of beauty? Absolutely. So, you are suddenly looking at the sort of, uh, what is it? It's almost the pinnacle of perfection in manufacture, the least amount of material, the lightest product that you can sit on. So in terms of structural integrity, in terms of how it is constructed, in terms of how it is manufactured, the monoblock is absolutely perfect. People looking at the monoblock might not use the word beauty. So what is this beauty? Is this inner beauty? Is it beauty in terms of technology? It is beauty in terms of structural integrity. It is beauty in terms of um, the quality of uh, the plastic that is used, that it's such very little material. And it's and how much does a monoblock cost to buy? It's possible that you can buy a monoblock for $10 or less. So it doesn't cost very much for you to go and buy a chair. So which means that the whole population of the planet has chairs that they can sit on. And uh, that's the monoblock. So that's the, that's the story of the monoblock. Now, so what is the problem with the monoblock? The problem with the monoblock is that it's found discarded in lots of different kinds of places. There are some cities in Europe which are trying to ban the monoblock because they're saying it's really ugly. And they tend to be white or dark green and they're just lying everywhere. And they are contributing to the waste stream. So they, they arouse uh, lots of hate vibes. And... Does that mean it is not beautiful? I don't know. And that's one of the most magical things about uh, perfection in technology and ubiquitous, the presence of this kind of chair, which is there everywhere. And it's just so such an amazing technological feat that it doesn't cost very much, but everybody's hating it. And give yourself some space to appreciate something that is is so, so, so amazing. It sort of gives you the sense that uh, you're hating it, but you're not hating it for what it is, but you're hating it for the fact that it's, it's so, so successful, it's really problematic now. All right, so that was my sort of segue into the idea that if, if you look at something and you hate the look of it, if you look at something and you say it's plastic and you, you feel revulsion towards it, is it actually to do with what you're looking at or to do with it invoking or something else? You're getting triggered by the fact that it's plastic or it's wasteful or, I don't know, global warming or fossil fuel or I don't know what people get triggered by. But there's a whole bunch of things that are simmering underneath that people, they come out sort of spewing. So monoblock, fantastic thing to trigger people. All right, my first um, sort of, point in the five is this thing of beauty uh, can be seen to be in three parts. So to be bowled over by beauty, you see something beautiful and then you go, ah. Oh. So to be bowled over by beauty is innate. It is uh, not just for human beings, but I think even pets, when they see somebody who's really beautiful, they're much nicer to them than people who are not that beautiful. Is that true? We don't know. Let's call it an urban myth. Now, children can be bowled over when they see something beautiful. So my three-year-old son, um, when bowled over by this beautiful woman, he, he would say, she have long hair or something like that. So the ability to navigate beauty 
beyond the visual, beyond the superficial, is something that we have to cultivate. It is an ability that we have to learn. It is something we need categories. We need to, so to, to, to look at the monoblock and not to spew, to go beyond and say, hey, let us appreciate the monoblock. To do that, we need to pause. We need to enter into the world of designers and then we need to start to unpack it. So you need to pause, you need to make space, and then you need to learn a bit more. So today, in that sense, we're looking at beauty as a door opening, as a framework making. So I've given you four sort of aspects to beauty. Did I say three parts? Let's add a fourth part. Or we just leave it at three parts. So this outer beauty. Now that's something fairly straightforward. So when you look at poetry, I'm going to use outer beauty as a poetry category. So you say, ah, oh, you know, the leaves slowly dappled sunlight. It's falling down. You get the sense of... Uh, impermanence and you get wabi-sabi. So you have all these kinds of categories of perceived beauty, the autumn, and daffodils and the meadows. So, so it's essentially one of you are outside of the phenomenon and you're writing poetry about it. Inner beauty is uh, the uh, what we witnessed with uh, the monoblock, which is when you make something then it's not the outer beauty. So in my last talk in Perfection, I proffered up a motorcycle. I said that's CB750. Now, this particular motorcycle, the Honda CB750, is, is quite legendary. Um, when you look at it, it, it looks like a 1970s motorcycle. So it's a period piece. When you start it up, it's a, it's a four-cylinder 750cc. And a four-cylinder 750cc is, is like a metallic. Um, it's got this absolutely gorgeous metallic hum. And as it sort of starts up, anyway, that's, that's me salivating about uh, the CB750. And then when I was editing, I went and had a look at CB750. And I said, I want to buy a CB750 in Melbourne. $47,000 to buy a CV750. And so it's, it's, a, it's beautiful, beautifully kept. Its value is going up. So by the time you graduate, you wouldn't be able to buy a CV750 for, for $47,000. It's probably going to be $60,000. So the CV750 contains inner beauty for those who are willing to pay that price. So what is it that they are seeing? And what they're seeing is Honda's sort of engineering, it's, um, it's, it's a way of manufacturing the components like they're cassettes. You know, the whole gearing assembles very precisely like cassettes. So if you, I, I sent you through a link, or I put it in the description. So the book that I was reading after, I went back to read a book by Simon Winchester titled Precision. And he time and again talks about uh, precision and this joy of recounting something that's so beautifully engineered and so beautifully made. So inner beauty is uh, a particular, a different kind of lens. So to get that inner beauty, you would have to, let's say, permeate into the the construction or the technology or the discourse. So, for example, in Tadawando's churches, when you look at the concrete, uh, it bears the impression of the steel that was used for the formwork. So it looks like steel in twilight, and that is quite deliberate. 
Sometimes it's even polished or oiled so that it looks more metallic, but it's concrete. It's just that it's taken on the surface texture of steel. So, so inner beauty is penetrated when, you're, when you go inside and start to talk to people who have made it, or you start to know much more about how things are made, or you, you dismantle something. So, so which segues nicely into the notion of the beauty of machines. So machines have two kinds of beauty. One is in their ability to perform quite miraculous feats. So, so they do uh, very interesting things. But the second thing is in essentially how the principles of physics are very cleverly sort of incorporated into something which has moving parts and then it, it will keep uh, it seems to have a life of its own in the way it actually keeps going on and on and to, to know more about the beauty of machines I think back to that book on uh, precision so essential beauty uh, so the phrase for example is something uh, there are things that are essentially beautiful is that we have a way of looking at essential beauty when we look at nature so we have enough sort of historical uh, precedence to look at stones to look at water that's flowing to to be to have the language to be able to find nature beautiful that's something that then nature acquires essential beauty. Okay, so this is beauty in three parts, or now with essential beauty, it's in four parts. The second thing is about insider language. Now I'm going to show you a few things which are potentially going to be new for you. All right, so we had a little bit of minimalism as a genre. So there's other genres. So I'm going to talk about genres or design events and show you where... Uh, design, industrial design, architecture design, and the world of design can be a bit like a cult, which means you have words, language, isms, like minimalism. So you could use these kinds of things, which are, we only speak inside, amongst ourselves, in very knowing sort of fashion. So when we talk about design, uh, it's quite different from, let's say, somebody else experiencing design. So my first topic is Memphis. So I should put a link to this. Memphis was a design movement in the 1980s. It was um, short-lived, but it produced a, uh, a fissure, a catastrophic transformation of, uh, oh, design is evolving and the people are sort of doing incremental changes. And suddenly there's this um, sort of like a pop art um, phenomenon of uh, something a bit ludicrous, you know, very, very colorful, um, plasticky looking, furniture, uh, disjointed angles, uh, a, a couch that looks like a boxing ring. So so the designers were having fun, but before they started having fun or started making these pieces, they actually got together and they named uh, what they were going to do together uh, based on a Bob Dylan song, which was playing around in the background. They said, we'll just use the word Memphis. So it's, it's called the Memphis Movement. It was born in Italy. And there's a bunch of people, and it's it's quite significant that uh, within design we often say, will there be another movement like that? Will again people come together and produce something quite uh, uh, radical, quite uh, sort of uh, questioning, saying, hey, would you buy one of these Memphis products? Would you go to a shop and buy one of these? So in a sense, 
this was insider conversation, but it was also a whimsical conversation. They were being funny. They were not being very serious. And um, people who enter design from the outside, they go, design is serious business. You know, people are paying money for it. It's got to be sensible. It's got to be utilitarian. And there have to be customers. Who needs customers? Did Memphis want customers? No. So uh, once you're inside, you start to see lots of different kinds of little hoods, uh, little cults, little groupings, little people getting together to do different kinds of things. You can't wish it away. It happened in the 1980s. I can't wish it away. So it's there. I'm just bringing it up to you. Now, were Memphis artifacts beautiful? They had a fragile beauty. They had a whimsical beauty. And they're very iconic. So they're beautiful in the iconic sense. Are they there in all the museums around the world? Absolutely. Are they there in all the books? Absolutely. They just are. So you can't wish it away. So you have to be able to give an account of it. The second one. The second one is something that happened in the 1860s, or was it 1870s? It was an exhibition in Paris. It was an exhibition of Japanese prints and objects in Paris. And it had a... So at that time, Japan was closed for 200 years. They had... Um, nobody was allowed to come into Japan, and Japanese people were not allowed to go out, and they were not allowed to have wheels. Some things, carriages with wheels, were not allowed. Everybody had to go around in horses. So they had... They, Tokugawa, Tokugawa shogunate. And at the end of that period, when Japan was priced open and they had uh, an exhibition of Japanese artifacts, ceramics and furniture and block prints and so on, it was the shock in Paris was, uh, had ripple waves and produced an ism called a Japonism. Today, uh, we're about 100-ish years after that, and we have a new thing. It's called Japandi. And so minimalism today wears a different kind of uh, suit. There is high minimalism, which means you're talking tadawando, you're talking sort of uh, poetic minimalism. Then there's low minimalism, which means minimalism to sell you uh, uh, Japanese aesthetic to people who don't live in Japan. So you can go to Emporium and you can walk into the Muji store and you can buy minimalism or and so on so are they beautiful absolutely i think the the thing about uh, muji meets ikea we're not getting them married on this uh, talk um and then there's in fitzroy uh, there's a uh, collingwood there's a shop selling there's a lot of places around melbourne which sell different kinds of japanese ceramics now um I don't, you want to buy low um, Japanese ceramics and um, then you can go to, let's say, the more accessible artifacts. And if you want uh, high Japanese and you want to you know, spend a lot of money on ceramics, then it comes uh, with a signature designer and you can buy them in different kinds of shops. So there exists a value today of minimalism. And uh, somebody the other day was calling it not minimalism, but zoo minimalism. So it was actually zoom combining with minimalism. So I'm sitting here and behind me, this is at RMIT. So I've just got these Venetian blinds, but most other people would have um, a rack with, uh, you know, 
uh, a monster or a plant and some voles, some ceramics, and we sort of create an artifact universe as a backdrop. And and there are codes. So if you go online and you Google it, it'll tell you how you're supposed to do your backdrop. Uh, so uh, Japandi is a generic way for you to style your house. If you go to an Airbnb, and if you want people to book your Airbnb at the slightly higher price at which you're putting your Airbnb, then you'd better Japandi it. Because if you don't do Japandi with your Airbnb, then not a lot of people are going to book it, uh, potentially. Number three, yeah, this is new. And this is, again, something that happened in the 1980s. Not a lot of people talk about it. I talk about it because this was part of my growing up. So when I was becoming a designer, there was a thing, there was a period of product semantics. So which essentially means that um, when you go across the road in, in Melbourne, um, there's, a, there's a place where you can push, push a button and then it'll, it'll sort of, you're requesting access to use the pedestrian crossing. So buttons have to look like buttons. And if you get into the tram in Melbourne or you get into the train, the grab rail will be yellow, saying, in case you didn't know, that's where you're supposed to grab it. So it's colorful, it's, 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 it articulates, it speaks, it shouts at you, saying, I'm a grab rail, look at me. And then uh, when you have two pipes intersecting in trams and they meet, you'll see that at the joint, it, it tends to be uh, bright green or yellow or something like that, saying, I'm a joint, I'm a joint, look at me. So so let's say that this is product semantics. They, they, they're not hidden, they're supposed to talk. Um, better than, let's say, if you go and look at uh, monitors and televisions, you're, you're, and you have a remote, but then they also have switches. And it's not obvious where the switches are, and it's not deliberately obvious. But in the old days, if you had a button, then the button had to say, you know, I am doing this, so come and press me, and it had to be very very loud and if we go back to that period then we go to look at a phone by Lisa Krohn so she's a student and uh, this is a student project was it an honors project hypothetically this is the Cranbrook Academy of Art Lisa Krohn designed a telephone and amongst a whole bunch of other products uh, that series of works in those days in Cranbrook Academy of Art in Detroit in the US, they produced a book and the book went around the world and maybe it went around the Anglosphere and we all looked at it and we said, whoa, look at that book. Uh, this is fantastic. So she had a phone which, uh, if you look at a photograph of the Lisa Crone phone, would you be able to understand what's going on? Okay, so in the old days you had rotary phones and then when the rotary phones gave way to the push button phones, there was a lot of text and there were, there were uh, a directory inside the phone so that you could uh, have a, a smart dialing. So the second keypad, number one, essentially meant you were calling this particular person or something like that. So what she had done was she had converted it into a Rolodex kind of device. So when you click it, then the buttons have a different meaning. And then you cha change the page. The buttons are still there because each of the pages has holes in them. Anyway, when you see the photo, you'll understand. So what was going on? So it's product semantics and uh, that things speak and that people decipher objects and that you need to make things easy to decipher was was quite important in those days. 
has it come back now? I sort of think so. Nowadays, you know, there's a new thing about, oh, it has to be user-centered. So maybe a bit of that semantic is coming back. But was that the last hurrah of the Anglosphere? We don't know. But go have a look at Lisa Crone, product semantics, and I'll put a link to it. Number four is, is exposed concrete. Oh, we're looking at, we're sort of not looking at uh, the kind of concrete used but at Tadawando, but we're looking at the more rough sort of concrete. Concrete in which uh, concrete's been cast with rough hewn timber. So when the timber formwork is taken away and the concrete is left, when you look at the surface of concrete, you can see the texture. And when you see it in twilight, it actually looks like wood. Um, brutalism is what this particular movement or this particular style or this particular way of treating exposed concrete building was called. Um, some say that it's Le Corbusier and uh, Beton Brut is naked concrete. And so that's where it comes from. But if you look at the works of architecture in the context of brutalism, it has a particular kind of beauty. And that is um, because concrete after a period of time becomes gray and grimy and and then these are forgotten buildings and, and then there's a huge thing about they're really ugly, you tear them down and a whole bunch of people are saying, no, no, you can't tear them down, they're beautiful. They have. So what is the kind of beauty that old ruins and exposed concrete brutalist architecture has? So within the insiders, we can sort of look at it and go and say, uh, totally amazing. So the capsule tower in Tokyo, every now and then they say it has to be pulled down and then there's a huge sort of uh, movement against it saying, no, no, you can't bring it down. So the last bit is where it sort of comes to this notion of uh, within the insider talk, sometimes this folk uh, works come in. So uh, how do you, so, so you have, if you go to a country town, you know, uh, you have the big orange and the big banana and all those kinds of things. But you also have a particular style of architecture and construction. And in, in Australia, there's a, in architecture, there is a farm industrial shed kind of architecture that is, let's say, performed inside the city. And it has that sort of uh, uh, corrugated iron uh, aesthetic. And quite beautiful. So, and then it, people from overseas will look at it and go, "That's really, really interesting." You know, that that shed-like sort of edgy farm, authentic architecture. Um, is that beautiful? So, to again, a lot of that kind of work for you to find it beautiful, you need to know what is happening inside to be able to appreciate it. So, this was about uh, the insider language. Now. Uh, Number three is a preoccupation with thingness. That's the topic of the way I've sort of got it listed. And I'm going to shift. We're going to go back into the engineering kind of space, but we're going to, there are going to be two people. There's going to be the engineer and the industrial designer. So uh, Yamaha is a motorcycle company. And quite a lot of these uh, engineering companies, they have components that sit in a bin of parts. So when you're making a new model, you want to reuse many of those bin of parts. But if you make a new part, it also goes into the bin so that other products use those components. So this business of thinking of the ecology of components as actually a system, like a Lego. Um, for those of you who've played with Lego, it sort of feels, ah, oh, yeah, that's obvious. Why wouldn't they do it? Uh, the fact is that they don't do it. And some companies do it, do it more and some companies do it less. 
so it's a, so this business of seeing the whole but also seeing the parts and seeing the smaller holes that then are assembled to make bigger holes is let's say uh, one particular preoccupation maybe the uh, engineering preoccupation or the industrial designer who sees uh, products from the inside out not from the outside in so within the culture of making now in that culture of making how do you connect one thing to the other so when uh, two components are bolted together you get something called a join and joinery is an obsession so <laughs> so if you if you were to uh, and it's not a new obsession it's been around uh, forever for example if you look at japanese wood joinery it 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 becomes an art form excessively complex joinery so in timber uh, there exists a particular let's say obsession with joinery i went to a design school where some of the tutors were joinery obsessed and it is sort of more scandinavian so in in joinery in northern europe is hidden so when you don't show bolts you don't show screws you try and contrive to have them sitting inside and hidden so something locks into something else and then there's a pin and then it it locks so for example um, if you were to look at um, uh, traditional chinese tables so traditional chinese tables do not have uh, so traditional chinese tables so traditional wood work didn't have metal joinery you know s- uh, screws nuts and bolts and all this fancy sort of stuff so so you have things that come from the side and then the, th- the thing that comes from the other axis essentially locks it and there's a pin that locks it so some fascinating uh, trade practices evolved in joinery and it still continues so if you were to look at some exquisite sort of science so now science has entered the thing so suddenly you have very sophisticated machines you can uh, make joinery uh, cad joinery and then get the cnc machine to do it and then you lock it in place so so things that have an exquisite joinery are they beautiful and the story is that when you look at something that's really beautiful when you get close and you see the joinery has been done poorly it sort of mars the beauty something that's uh, got uh, a finesse uh, an attention to detail an attention to joinery uh, is quite fantastic so for example if you go to fed square um and then you go to the bmw edge and then you're sitting there and it's a gl- it's it's got a metal structure and then it's got glass on the outside um and you say it's the first time i looked at it uh for somebody who high, who sort of uh, values hidden joinery it was horrible and i still look at it and i go something is missing you know it's not the sense of the metal elements coming together and locking in place it's been done very crudely but you can see it all over the world that there are people who are not into finessing their joinery and they'll just do it so it's like don't look at don't come so close and look at it look at the big structure so um, yep yeah, you go to beijing and then you see the bird's nest and you see it from far actually and i went close and i went that is a drop setting um, and then you get into let's say you get into a train in copenhagen in in denmark and you don't see any fasteners it's a bit like getting into a plane it's all everything is hidden things have been locked in and they've been screwed into place it's just a little bit extra there exists a sense of 
finessing. It's like when you do when you stitch clothes, sometimes you expose the stitching, but quite often you hide the stitching. And there's lots of different techniques to to put the fold and then to hide it in and so on. So construction and preoccupation with construction can also produce a particular form or a language of beauty. So what is rendered visible and what is kept invisible? So the screws, joineries, intersections. So it's not the big form, but it's the point at which two forms intersect that you go and you look and you say, that's really fantastic. And so the if you if you look, for example, at all the Dyson products and the way they latch, they do a really good job. But I sit with, I've, I've been collecting <laughs> quite a few Dyson vacuum cleaners because uh, it's perfection, it's engineering, and it, it's doing, but there's something that's missing in the sense that there is a certain crudeness to the Dyson. It's not finessed. And and it could be could have been done differently. So it's a bit thobby, it's a bit chunky, and it'll go... It won't go like that. So, what is it? So, in terms of when you're looking at things, uh, beauty exists in, let's say, the joinery. And that's my point number three. Number four uh, is the form of things. So, when you look at uh, the overall form of something, the... Uh, what is going on? How do you unpack the form? How do you then get inspired and uh, elevated and say, ah, oh, that's really beautiful? So I've taught form uh, in the past. Um, and recently I've been teaching something called strong form, which is that uh, you can, how do you, how do you enhance and transform the quality uh, of, suppose you want to say, I want to do a form that, that, inspire, that, that denotes strength. And on the other side, I want to do a form that denotes uh, delicacy or fragility. So what kind of forms are these? And how do you then do the treatment of these kinds of forms? So uh, f some years ago, uh, Simon, Carlos, and I, we sort of collaborated where I would do the initial part of uh, the motorcycle design studio and he would do uh, the subsequent part. So in the first part... Um, I was sort of using collaging with the students. I was saying, go online and uh, download a whole chunk of images of motorcycles. Then, you know, cut out the seat, cut out the wheel, cut out all the different parts so that you have a kit of parts. And then make a whole series of folders saying exhausts and wheels and tanks and something and something like that. And then into those, you go around, like you can go and look at a kettle, you know, just a normal kettle, and you say the form's really nice, you know. Uh, you would take the form, cut it out in Photoshop and put it in your tank category or whatever. So you have a whole series of, uh, let's say, uh, kit of parts. And in Photoshop, you go and you assemble those kit of parts. And in the assembly is your concept development. So uh, it's a preoccupation with motorcycles. The, the, there is a story connected to inner beauty and looking at it from the outside. So in, in the book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, there are two people driving down a highway. They've got two pillion riders behind them. And uh, the author is on one of the motorcycles. And he is somebody who, uh, under, when he's on the motorcycle and riding it, he is, has a sense of how the engine is working and how it's heating up and what are the different... And then he's watching out for the tone of the engine. 
the person on the other motorcycle is somebody who takes the motorcycle into a mechanic to get it fixed. So, so these are two. It's an illustration then of somebody who's who looks at machines inside out, and then sees the essential beauty of it. So it doesn't have to be just the looks of the thing. And then on the other side, you've got somebody who looks at it from the outside in, saying that I don't really care what's happening inside. It should just work. And then I want it to look uh, nice so that it accords with, I don't know, my style or something like that. So you get these two uh, polar opposites or two categories of, let's say, uh, looking at form outside in, inside out. Um, the other way of uh, looking at form when I went to design school, psychology was very important. Uh, it was a phase. Uh, psychology is not that important a subject in design schools anymore, but it was a thing, which means that uh, it was not. It was just all over the world. Everybody was sort of saying, "Oh, gestalt psychology," and there was an author, Wolfgang Kohler, who talks essentially about the overall form and the feeling that you get. So there's a feeling orientated way of looking at form. So when you look at a form, do you do you sort of assess it for the kinds of emotions it evokes in you? You can. And that's a rabbit hole you can go down. But I won't go there right now. I'll keep that on one side. Now, inside the form of things, designers use different kinds of language. So, for example, um, minimalism versus maximalism. So, so those two categories, minimalism and maximalism, hypothetically exist. So we've, and you're all uh, reasonably familiar with it. So the minimalism and maximalism is what is the overall effect you want? You want it to be really simple or you want it to be really shouty. Okay, so we leave that to one side and go on. Now, now imagine a chair. A chair has legs, it has a backrest, and it has an armrest. Um, but a chair which has a structure like that which is this part is the back, and this part is the seat. But this part is also the uh, back leg and seat. Yeah? So suddenly what you've got is uh, the, the front leg and backrest is one component. The back leg and seat is the second component. Um, whereas in a traditional chair, you've got four legs, a seat, and a backrest. And they're all separate components. So typologically, uh, the leg is a leg. The seat is a seat and the backrest is a backrest. In the second instance, when it crosses over, how was it? Like that. <laughs> Something like that. So when it crosses over and it's, um, it's a cross-structured uh, chair or a folding chair, the back leg also serves as the seat and the front leg also serves as the backrest. So it is a concatenation of two components. So parts and their identity. Can you combine two parts so that they do so that one component can do two jobs? It's a very engineering way of thinking about it. But when I encountered, let's say, Italian furniture designers uh, writing about typology in this particular way, I got very excited. I said, "Yes, um, one of the rules of value engineering is you have to take two components and see if you can combine them so that one component does two jobs." Okay rather than having lots and lots of different components. You have fewer components, but they do uh, lots of work. So typology is that um, flux between many components and fewer components doing uh, multiple jobs. So that's one way of thinking about it. Articulation is the other word. I used articulation when I was talking about the fact that when you see a button, 
it should be a different color so that you know it's a button. Um, in certain countries, this is quite common. And uh, it is, if you go to China and you walk into a factory where they're making, let's say, toasters for different countries, and you say, hey, that's a toaster for where? I say, that's going to the US. And you look at them and you go, yeah, big buttons. And then there's another toaster. <laughs> they say, where's that? And they look at you saying, guess. And I said, that's going to Australia. They said, yes, again, big buttons, you know. So big handles, big buttons, chunky details uh, should be going to some of these countries which lack articulation. It's a handle. It should look like a handle. Whereas if it's going to Japan, the handle can be concealed. It doesn't need to be visible, you know. So, so there is an expectation when people go to look at products. Like you go to look at a fridge. It's got to have a handle and it should look like a handle. No, but the door has got a recess. You can open it like that. And that's more uh, the sort of thinking in the East, whereas here it'll be, yeah, maybe the handle has to be a different color. It used to be a different color in the old days. So, so that's, let's say, the thinking about form and articulation. So in, in the context of beauty, have I worked on a project to redesign the handle of a refrigerator? Um, I sort of sketched it. I haven't worked on a project, but I ha I know people who've who've agonised over uh, redesigning the handle of a refrigerator, and they walked around with foam models saying, "What do you think of that particular curve? Should it be like this?" So, so beauty exists even in uh, these little sort of accessory projects. Now, uh, the exterior geometry. We are in a period where uh, things are uh, fairly simplified. I would say go to Repco or go to an automotive spare parts kind of place. Um, or go to Repco is fantastic. Go to any place where they're selling uh, motor oil or engine oil or something like that. And look at the cans that it comes in. Look at the Castrol can. It's got grooves and it's got chamfers. And it's got, there's a lot uh, of fancy stuff going on. So. If you were working for Castrol and you had to design uh, the oil can, uh, then you have to put in all the little bits. For example, you need an oil bypass. So when you're pouring out the oil, the air has to escape, otherwise it'll bubble, and then the mechanics are going to curse you. So you have to be able to pour out the oil really quickly, and then the oil uh, shouldn't bubble because the air should, the air that is for cavity at the back, and all of those kinds of things. So air movement has to be possible. But then it also has to have, uh, you know, it's got to be close packed because you need to minimize the amount of space in logistics and transportation. But then when you hold it up, uh, it's got to look very smart. So it's got to be black or bright yellow or something like that, like uh, like power tools. So, so there's a lot of energy that goes into the exterior design of, let's say, these plastic products. And I have taught the form, uh, you know, how to sort of uh, improve the macho-ness of, let's say, plastic oil cans. Um, number five is the notion of, let's say, things have are parts. Uh, there's a whole and then there are parts, which means there's a hierarchy. So the, the tulip watering can from IKEA, um, that's a Monica Mulder design, um, has the shape of a tulip flower and, and beautiful sort of a handle where uh, it's a single 
like the monoblock. It's a monoblock type injection molding design. Often, and that's a one piece, but often things have, you know, the handle is different, the spout is different, so they're all in different parts. So for example, a teapot is very different from a jerry can. It's not made out of plastic. A teapot's made out of metal, so it has many different components to it. And uh, you start to get a sense of what to do with the hierarchy of the different components. Now, the teapot sits in a kitchen, and the kitchen has lots of things. There's, there's a coffee thing, there's a filter, there's cutlery, there's, there's all sorts of different kinds of components. And herein lies uh, the fundamental issue that has to be addressed, saying, should it fit in? Should it be part of a system? Or should it stand out? Uh, if it's sitting on the gas hob, then should it be quiet or should it be loud? So is it part of the kitchen, which means it sort of fits in, which is what your current trend of minimalism, or is it is it red and loud and so on? And I think this is visual aesthetics, but this kind of visual aesthetics is slightly uh, connected to the larger tastes in that particular um, context in which you're looking at it. All right. The, so that's a part-whole uh, dichotomy. You know, is it, is, it, is, it, is it individual by itself or is it a component of a larger whole? Then you've got this thing called the archetype. Um, do you need to be interested in the archetype? Probably not. I was. Because um, if you've read your Carl Jung and if you've been exposed to a little bit of psychology, archetypes are things that have an original form. So if you were to ask a child to draw a kettle, then or a, they'll, they'll, they'll do a kettle, which looks like an archetype. Anybody who looks at it would say, yeah, that's a kettle. So things have archetypal forms. And should you yearn towards the archetype or should you do the lisochron things so that uh, you make a phone look like a flip, uh, a, a planner, a a Filofax or a Rolodex. So what are the archetypes that you're playing with? And archetypes also have the ability to reference history. So for example, in if you've got uh, an umbrella and the umbrella has a handle, uh, would you use a traditional handle so that you, you know, you're referencing back to a cane that was bent in that particular way? Or would you have, uh, you know, a different kind of grip? So these sort of subtle choices do confront us. And if we take one or the other, then within the insider dialogue, you are choosing to take on the archetype, uh, to reinforce the archetype, or you're, you're being slightly provocative. Are you sensitive to it? It's like writing poetry. You know, words have meaning. They have a sound. And placed in a correct place, they make things very beautiful. So it's got a subtlety to it. And the last aspect of this is the object in the world. So there was one object which became uh, iconic. So the word postmodernism is connected to uh, the kettle from Alessi. So this particular kettle was a design by an American architect, Michael Graves, and it's it's 
it's very iconic. Yes, I have a kettle like this, and yes, I put it on and forgot, and the plastic bits melted, and yes, I've got a new replacement bird, but not the knob on to open it, so which means now it has to be filled from the spout. So this particular kettle, if you were to buy it in the shop, is probably worth about $350. It's a design statement. You can buy it in a design museum, uh, potentially at the NGV. So what is this object? It's Obviously, this is not about um, boiling water because you can go to get Kmart, you can go to any shop and you can get a, I don't know, $10, $15 kettle and it'll do the job. You can buy, you know, a $50, very, very good Morphe Richards second-hand kettle. You would pay $350 because this kettle, when you boil water in this, I mean, in the old days when I would boil water in this, it would give me a, a tremendous amount of joy because I am, it's a, it's a design community thing. I'm holding it up, it's filling it up with water, washing it. It's a bit worse for wear now. And I was given to me as a gift and it's it's a precious object. Is it beautiful? It, it completely, you know, this is the iconic Michael Graves whistling kettle. It's it's fabulous. Does it do its job really well? It doesn't. So that's why it sits on the side and I've got an electric kettle. So this object is is a museum piece. It's It exists in the world, but when you hold it, it also transports you. And I think to 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 take design and make it completely utilitarian is uh, it's a little bit pointless and so this in a sense has that beauty okay going to my next point the so beauty as as the form of things was this point now beauty when there's something essential so beauty when it, it when it is hidden so you've if, if something is good, then it must be a secret. I don't know if you know of this particular kind of story. For example, there is a there's a story of a prince who fell in love with a dancing girl, and the, the king got very angry, so he got the dancing girl entombed in a wall. So he invited these masons, and the girl was placed there, and she was singing, and then they built the wall, and she died inside the wall. So there exist the in 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 history in storytelling there exists these tales of romance where uh, you have forms of you know extreme passion or extreme love and and sort of intersecting with uh, culture. So it, is it possible that there's a lot of beauty hidden within the object and? Uh, people who have the object that don't actually know anything about it. And uh, are they designers, which is what we're coming to, who who put secrets into uh, the objects? Are they engineers who, who build in um, the singing, dancing girl inside the walls of the palace? And the answer is yes. And therein lies the mystery of the individual effort that you're you're doing something and you do something so exquisitely but you don't go around shouting about it on linkedin or on instagram saying look at me look at me no you do something and then you sit and you go i did that and nobody knows about it and for me this particular form of uh, brilliance 
has always had uh, this uh, amazing magic to it. So that we opened with the Japanese car. So somebody said, but why do they look like that? And my thing was, they have the most astounding inner beauty. And if you, if you produce something of astounding inner beauty, what would you cover it in? And I think the story is that you cover it in such a way that nobody realizes it's amazing. You know, you keep it a secret because then you have a secret. Um, there's, I don't know if you keep secrets. I don't know if you uh, read stories about secrets. So for me, um, I have a weird story about a secret. This is a French story. Uh, there's this guy who's, um, it's Emily Zola. And in this story, this man is in love with this woman who's not his wife. So uh, the man and his lover get together and they kill the wife. And they weigh her down and drop her into the water. But when they go to bed at night, they wake up because between them, is a dead body that's wet. <laughs> so, so there's a secret in there which is corrosive, which is, which is killing them. It's waking them up, up at night. I'm just putting it in there. I've been putting this Emily Zola story into students' heads for a very long time. Just to say that you don't need to put something criminal, but just think about it, that when you design something, do put something in there which... Is, your, is a mark to yourself, and it's your secret, and nobody knows. Are there things that I have put into? Yeah. I write papers in which I code stuff, and it's, I won't reveal them to you. So in lots of places, I put bits, and it's just playfulness. But it's fragility. So this is what beauty is, that the inner beauty is waiting for you everywhere for you to discover, whether it's in nature or it's in works that you don't know anything about, which essentially means that if the essence, if essential beauty is everywhere and it's always hidden, then you can't walk around with your bullshit confidence saying, oh, that's rubbish, that's ugly. Yeah, you have to look inside because it's the dowdiness. In 2004, I said, uh, you know, elite sports people. <laughs> uh, I said to my friend, he said, why do the Japanese cars look like that? So I said to him, if you participate in the Olympics, if you're an elite sports person, and if you're going to get a gold medal, before the game, you wear trachydacks. You know, dowdy, not <laughs> shapeless clothes. But inside those shapeless clothes is, is an ace body, which is capable of, you know, something quite spectacular. So your life from this point potentially transformed because you know that until you have more information, you can't make a judgment call. How do you know if something is good? It could be hiding something good. So that's my last point. So just to wrap up, is design about producing beauty in this world? Um, that's not the question because the question can be flipped on its head. Is design about producing beauty in this world? We don't know because is design not about producing beauty in this world? Becomes the opposite question. So are you the only people producing beauty in this world? And the answer is yes. Like the poet is converting text into beauty. It is your job. So why are you doing all this other stuff? So if, if an engineer and a manufacturer or an engineer approach a designer, hey, can you give us a hand? What is the help they're asking from the designer? I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to leave it with you. Okay, that's me for today. So that was that episode on beauty. And it's potentially either planted a seed 
or has actually watered a sapling inside you, which is the love for the monoblock chair. So maybe it's not done that much. Maybe it's just lessened the hate you feel towards it. All right. So um, in terms of, if you go to the description section, you will see a few links. So there's a link to Memphis and an article from The Guardian. There's a Vitra Design Museum article on the monoblock. There's a lovely podcast, uh, the Brutalism podcast from Getty Art, the podcast channel. And it talks about the project of conserving brutalist architecture. Obviously, conserving architecture, but a significant number of these works or a significant amount of the podcast discusses exposed concrete brutalist architecture. And then the last link is the Lisa Crone phone. And I've used a podcast episode or an audio track or a lecture by her in that link. So yes, enjoy.